0: Isaiah forty-one seventeen. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created this. We'll stop right there, and I'm going to go through the rest of this uh, chapter, but this is a good place to stop and make a few comments, uh, because it actually ends the last section. If you remember the last section, God is reassuring Israel of his love and his care for them, and the context is Isaiah is seeing in the future where they will be taken captive uh, by the Babylonian army. Um, And held as captives for 70 years until Cyrus the king of Persia comes to deliver them and they will be coming back and so now Isaiah is seeing their deliverance. Uh, That's the immediate context. And of course. Because of the fall, we are distrustful of God, we doubt his goodness, we doubt he's going to take care of us. Uh, that comes from the very beginning, from the serpent that said to Eve, did God really say that? And so we doubt his word. And so here God is reassuring his people over and over again that he is trustworthy, that his word is sure, that his word is certain, so that we can approach him without fear. And so in verses 11 through 13, we talked about God defeating the enemies of Bringing them, uh, watching over Israel and and taking away their shame uh, and defeating the enemies. In verses 14 through 16, the power of the Lord in battle to defeat all enemies. And now we come to the thirsty. God created the world to reveal himself to us, God is spirit. We are not, Uh, we have a spiritual aspect because we're created in God's image. Uh, So we have, as the theologians say, one foot in this world, one foot in the spiritual world. Uh, But we are designed to learn things through our eyes and our taste buds and our hands and our ears um, and put them all together in our mind and work them through and praise the Lord for the goodness of his creation. So a perfect example. Uh, God created fruit of the tree and he created everything involved with bringing the fruit and he created us with uh, a mouth and a nose to hear, uh, to smell, to taste that fruit and to give God thanks for them. And then God uses that fruit to teach about himself. Uh, and to show us more and more. So by the time we get to the end of the uh, end of the revelation of God, he's talking about the fruit of the trees of life, and he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and all of these things to teach us these great spiritual truths about himself. Um, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And if you think about that just from a revelation standpoint, in order to understand what that is, you have to understand what a lamb is. Not only do you have to understand what a lamb is, you have to understand what the lamb is significant in revelation. But the sacrifice of the lamb doesn't make any sense if you've never seen or felt or watched a lamb or had anybody explain what a lamb is. Uh, the uh, Otherwise, you read Solomon's... Uh, dedication of the temple and you see the tens of thousands of animals slaughtered uh, and you realize that would have been an incredibly horrendous smelly, brutal affair where God is teaching us using the slaughter of all those animals the seriousness of sin uh, and the infinite worth of the sacrifice of his son, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world not even all of those lambs could have taken away the sins of the world, but Jesus Christ could. The reason I'm telling you this is, if you look at these verses before you, and today in the evangelical world, you'll have people say, well, I take the Bible literally. Well, I take the Bible literally as well, but it also needs to be understood. Uh, because the Bible is a book of poetry, a book of beauty, a book of songs, a book of history. Uh, and it is meant to be understood, and it's meant to be thought through and meditated on and seen. And so we take, for instance, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, literally, and yet we do not believe that Jesus was born of a you Uh, That he's a little tiny lamb that if you rub his fur, you're going to get lanolin on your fingers. We don't believe any of that. We believe this is a metaphor that's being used to teach us about the reality of the sacrifice. So also here, there is the literal meaning, echoes of the redemption of Israel from Egypt. And the picture, if you can imagine Israel walking through Egypt and all of a sudden their little ones are thirsty and their tongues are thirsty and how painful it is to be thirsty. But you know what's even more painful than being thirsty? It's when you look around at your kids, your wife, your family, and you see no water and no possibility of water. You can't dig a well. You can't walk down to Walmart. You, you, you're in the middle of a desert, And the only thing left to do is to die, unless God is good, and God is the creator, and God has ways that you don't know about. The temptation of Israel was to say, is God good, and is he going to actually do what he says he's going to do? What God said he was going to do is he's going to lead Israel all the way to the promised land. That he was going to provide them for them. That he was going to carry them on his wings. And now at the first test, they're thirsty. They're in pain. They don't see any water anywhere. What are you going to do? Is God actually good? You have two choices. Believe his word or desperately try to search for something else. And Israel first desperately tried to look for something else. And that was the golden calves. The advantage of a golden calf to Israel in to, all the idols of the world is that they believed they could control the gods. No one in the ancient world believed that the statue of silver, the statue of gold, the statue of wood was actually a god. They didn't believe that. What they believed was that through that, if you used that idol properly, did the right rituals, the right ceremonies, had the right holy man do the blessing and do everything exactly right, you could capture and contain the power of the God in the idol. And then you could manipulate that power for a blessing, to get what you want, to uh, to control the God and to have the God do whatever you want to with it. That was the power of the idols. And so when Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, he's there for 40 days. They don't know what happened to Jehovah. They're like, well, man, I wish there was a way that we could get him to talk and to tell us what we're supposed to be doing. I wish there was a way that we could... Make sure he was on our side and that he was going to fulfill all his promises. We don't have Moses anymore. What are we going to do? So they built the calves, just like they learned in Egypt, to capture the power of the gods. And they danced and they sang and they fornicated and did everything that they were supposed to do in order to get the attention of the gods. But the gods didn't give them any water. There was no water that flowed from the golden idols. Moses destroyed them, he ground them all up, and then, now, Israel doesn't have any water. They don't even have any idols. And what's the promise of God? He says in verse number 17, when your tongues fail for lack of thirst, I, the Lord, will hear you. It's not the idols. Don't turn from the idols. God will hear and here in the context, it's the context of the nation of Israel returning from Babylon, coming back, which is fulfilled in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And he's talking about raising the valleys and lowering the mountains and smoothing away all the obstacles, protecting from the enemies, fighting off the bandits on the way, protecting them, watching over them, feeding them, directing their steps, bringing them back through. And what happens if you're thirsty? I'll, I'll give you a drink. I've done it before. Don't fall into the mistake of thinking the way your father's thought by building the idols. He's going to talk more about idols in just a minute. So I will, but listen to what he says then. Then he goes on and he's talking about something far greater. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. All these descriptions now, he's talking about something far more than an exodus, far more than the exodus from Babylon. He's using this language that actually reminds you of Eden, doesn't it? In Eden, where God is dwelling with his people, and what do we read about Eden in Genesis chapter 2? From Eden flowed four rivers. They watered the whole earth. In the mythology of the ancient world, the gods all lived at the heads of the river. The rivers were the source of life. All the towns were built on rivers. They depended on their rivers for their livelihood. And so that was all in their mythology. There's some truth to it. It wasn't all false. There was truth to it, because in Eden, where every human being has the memory of Eden, God dwelt with his people at the head of four rivers, and from the throne of God there's the picture of the earthly things to teach us about spiritual realities. From the throne of God flow these four rivers, and what happens when rivers flow throughout the world? Then there's life, there's trees, there's Uh, If you've ever traveled in eastern Colorado, Susan was brought up in eastern Colorado, you drive through eastern Colorado, you can see a 100 miles because it's so flat. There is nothing there. The climate's called Alpine Desert. Um, I say there's nothing there. Susan says there's a lot there, but she grew up there. But one thing I do know is if you're driving through eastern Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, and all of a sudden you see these huge lush trees you know that there's a river there. There's a stream, there's some source of water. And thus it was in the ancient world. The the river brought forth life. This is why when God struck the Nile, he struck at the heart of the entire Egyptian religious system and social system and economic system. And God showed that he was above all of that. So there was truth to that. God dwelt with his people and the rivers flowed. But God now uses this to teach his people, all of us, that we have a thirst that's not going to be quenched by ordinary water. We have a thirst. See, Moses and, and, and the nation of Israel drank the water that came from the rock. Then they were thirsty again. Does this sound familiar? It wasn't living water. It wasn't water that brought them eternal life. And yet God is promising for all who are needy who all who desperately long have their thirst quenched. God is there for them. God is restoring Eden. Not only that, he's bringing us to something far grander than Eden. He's bringing us to the kingdom of God. The the time when there's no more thorns and thistles and no more curse. And as Revelation progresses. That theme of water is repeated over and over and over again. Uh, Isaiah says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Uh, Psalm 42, David says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so forth. And then John, he tells us that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the time that Israel was in Egypt. They built these booths. They built these tents out of palm branches. And it was a time of tremendous celebration and joy. And one of the rituals that they did on the last day of the Feast is they remembered God drawing water out of the rock. And so the priests went down to the pool of Siloam, which was right outside the temple, uh, the pool of Siloam, and they filled buckets with water, and they did a procession of water through the temple, and then they would pour the water out in this great procession, teaching the people that God quenches the thirst of those who seek after him. And that's the occasion when Jesus stands and he says with a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's the uh, the Trinity mentioned there. Jesus' glorification, his work, when his work is finished and he ascends up into heaven, he pours out the Holy Spirit, which from the beginning was what the water symbolized. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. What we thirst for is the restored presence and fellowship with God, and that's the Holy Spirit. The fruit of having that water is love and joy and peace and long-suffering gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Paul's whole point in the book of Galatians is you can go find some tree that's dying in the wilderness and you could scream it at the works of the law, thou shalt bring forth fruit. And it's not going to do a thing. What it needs is water. And where does the water come from? From the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of our Savior crucified for us, risen from the dead, who promised, whoever believes on me, whoever thirsts, I'll fill him with the Holy Spirit. Quench that thirst. And now, it is true that now we simply have the tastes of that. We simply have the whispers. Because as Paul says, we see by faith, not by sight. We don't see everything put under Jesus' feet yet. Now we're still wandering through the wilderness. And yet God does still quench thirst. He's the only one who quenches thirst. And yeah, you can can get water. I'm thirsty right now talking about it. You can get water, but you're going to be thirsty again. You need more water. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out, what we're truly thirsty for, what we long for with our whole being, like David says, like the deer pants after water, so my soul pants after the living God. That's what we long for. And that's why it's impossible for any idol to fill it. All an idol can do is give you a sense of religiosity. But it can't quench your thirst. And today, it seems to me, so many churches are offering a sense of religiosity, a sense of man, God really showed up today because there's a lot of music and a lot of feel good and a lot of, uh, you can lean on the more legalistic side and you can say, well, I really have the presence of God because I raise my kids right. I have my wife under control. I, uh, on and on and on and on and on. Uh, all of the lists of things that happen. And this is a really uh, intense subject for me because I feel all of this so personally being surrounded in a culture where there are so many rules on how to be religious, so many rules on how to gain God's favor, and very little talk about who Jesus is. And the fact is, when you know Christ, you've come to God. You have everything. You don't need a seven-step program for more fellowship with God. You already have Christ. That's the beauty of it. And this is why what the world needs is more preachers and proclaimers of that good news which by the way skipping down just a little bit uh, when he gets to um i gotta find it uh, verse number 27 he says first to zion the hebrew is first to zion Behold, behold, look, look, the translation's difficult, so all the translations are all over because they're just abbreviated very quick. First to Zion, behold, behold, I will give to Jerusalem proclaimers of good news. Those proclaimers of the gospel. If you heard my sermon on Sunday and two weeks ago about the women uh, proclaiming the good news from Psalm 62, you know how this all fits in. That's the same word, the proclamation of God's victory over sin and the power of the devil and everything that God has done to bring about his kingdom. Idols can't do that. Which is why now there's the warning against the idols, uh, beginning at verse number 21. And I want to go through this in depth. I'm going to give it more time next week. Otherwise, we're just inundated with a lot of information. But the gist of the whole thing is, is the idols of the nation are promising you all of that. They're promising you the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon, the wonderful music, the wonderful trees in the desert and all of this stuff. But even though Nebuchadnezzar can build huge palaces, somebody's got to make the brick. There's going to be oppression. There's going to be crushing. But more important than all of that, it's not going to give you what you truly thirst for. I give you a perfect example from the American political system because I suspect it's the same thing in political systems all across the nation. Every four years in America, we elect a new president. And in my living memory, every four years, that new president is touted as the savior of our country. And one or two years in, everybody's ready to lynch him because he didn't quench anybody's thirst. (laughs) we look to our politicians to save us. And every once in a while, God peels back the curtain and we see who these people actually are. And they're more loathsome than these idols of wood and stone. And yeah, there's a purpose for government. I'm not denigrating government. There's a purpose for all of it. The salvation of the world is not that purpose. Quenching our thirst is not that purpose. That can only come by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why it's such a shame to me when the pulpits throughout the country become loudspeakers for the politicians instead of the proclaimers of good news. What we're supposed to be doing is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And yeah, every every Christian's got an opinion about which politician they think ought to run for president and ought to win. We all have those opinions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what the church is. We're the people of God proclaiming the good news. When our tongues fail for thirst, God will hear us. And he will pour out rivers of living water upon us. Um, I think that's a good place to stop right there. And we'll look at the idols and the contrast with the idols next week. um, And we will begin that section. So with that, let's close in prayer. And then we can open it up to any uh, questions or discussion. Our Father in heaven, what a tremendous joy it is to know that you do indeed hear us, that you are our God. You love us. You have chosen us by name from before the foundation of the world and set your love upon us, sent your Son for us, and are now pouring out your holy spirit each day, Father, fill us with that spirit, for we cannot walk as we ought, we cannot we're not wise, we're not strong, we're not we need you every moment, and you, we know that you love us, and so fill us with that spirit, so that we might know our dependence upon you in all things, and at the same time lift up our heads, knowing that we are your beloved children and that we are not nothing, we're the children of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.